Good evening, listeners. It is June 11th, and you're turned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Mackenzie Smith. And I'm Lillian Paget-Cobb. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study, and here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Emily McElmore from the Department of English in the School of Writing, Literature, and Film. Emily, welcome to Inspiration Dissemination. Tell us about your work here at Oregon State. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, Yeah, so I work with the School of Writing, Literature, and Film in the English department, um, and I emphasize in uh, literature and culture. Um, I'm especially interested in medieval literature, and I just finished a thesis project on um, the Canterbury Tales, which... um, for listeners who aren't familiar with what that text is, um, it was written by Jeff- Geoffrey Chaucer uh, between 1387 and 1400, and it basically follows a group of pilgrims um, who are traveling between London and Canterbury, um, and each pilgrim has an opportunity to tell a tale and potentially win a storytelling contest at the end of uh, the manuscript, which was never finished, unfortunately, because Chaucer died um, in 1400. But we do have a collection of 24 stories from that uh, larger project that he planned. Wow, that's that's a that's a big project to tackle. That's a lot of different tales. So, tell us what was your area of focus, and how did you sort of select that area or the tales that you wanted to focus on? Um, so, I work with uh, the Knight's Tale and the Second Nun's Tale. Uh, the Knight's Tale is actually pretty popular. Um, it was even adapted into a a film uh, called A Knight's Tale um, in the early two thousands. Um, the Second Nun's Tale is much lesser known. Um, but I was really interested in The Second Nun's Tale um, after I met with Tara Williams, who was my thesis advisor um, in the fall of my first year. And she recommended that I read The Second Nun's Tale, knowing that I was really interested um, in representations of women and gender. Um, and so I read The Second Nun's Tale um, and just found it really amazing. And um, it was about this really powerful woman, uh, in in my opinion. And then I was actually quite shocked to take a look at the scholarship and no one was really interested in talking about the things that I saw happening in this text. Um, So the project kind of developed out from there and I was really interested in looking at um, these two female uh, protagonists who were understudied but also were doing some really powerful things with how um, I argue that they deploy their bodies in order to uh, maintain bodily sovereignty and autonomy uh, through retaining their virginity. Can you explain this idea of bodily autonomy as it relates to the literature you were studying, these these two tales? So women's uh, ability to um, maintain kind of independence was really limited. Um, in the medieval period, um, there's this idea or legislation really um, called the Femme Covert, 
Um, so basically what happened was as soon as a woman was married, her rights were subsumed by her husband's rights, um, by which she basically became uh, subject to her husband's will or even a kind of property we might think about um, you might think about it in those kind of terms. Um, so by my, my argument, and this is not the only way that women could retain this kind of independence, but um, virginity was, was a way in order to do this. So um, Emily, who's the protagonist in The Knight's Tale, and Cecilia, who's the protagonist in The Second Nun's Tale, um, are both using virginity to varying extents, um, and it allows them to navigate their circumstances um, differently than, than other women might otherwise be able to. And for those of us who aren't as familiar or don't have a good memory of the Canterbury Tales, can you tell us, just give us a quick kind of plot arc of the Second Nun's Tale and a Knight's, the Knight's Tale? Sure. Um, the Second Knight's or excuse me, the uh, Knight's Tale is, is much longer <laughs> than the Second Nuns. Um, but what I'm really interested in looking at um, is, is Emily, who is kind of the female protagonist. And she is an Amazon. Um, she's been she's basically a prisoner of war um, of Theseus's and um, who has married her sister Hippolyta. Um, and there's two knights, Palamon and Arcite, who are um, vying for her hand in marriage. And Emily wants nothing to do with either of these knights. Um, she very specifically uh, makes a prayer to Diana, the goddess Diana, um, asking to retain her virginity, um, to remain a virgin, um, and, and basically just um, be unwed, not, not know the company of men. Um, ultimately, she is married to Palamon. Um, and then in the second nun's tale, uh, Cecilia is... Um, she marries, which is, which is really unusual for a saint, um, or in hagiography, which is just a really fancy word for uh, the writing on saints' lives. Um, so she marries, but it's very important to her to maintain her virginity, and she's able to um, persuade her husband to allow her this by converting him to Christianity. Um, and she acquires, at least in, in my reading and in my interpretation, um, a significant amount of power through her conversion work. Um, and so then she is called to trial after her husband and brother-in-law brother excuse me, um, have been executed. Um, and she's tried, but in, in my interpretation, again, she's, um, this becomes much more of a gendered conflict uh, than a religious one. Um, and so then I discuss the ending, which is a really interesting kind of botched beheading. Um, she's unable to be beheaded in the sense of, in the, in the way that we would expect a successful beheading to go, in that um, it severs one's head from body. Um, and so I argue that that's a symbolic loss of virginity. Um, yeah, so ultimately she dies in the way of, of saints and martyrs, um, but her, her death is a particularly interesting one in my, in my reading. So one thing I'm curious about is... So you focused on these two particular tales, and there are, obviously, there were 24, mm -hmm. you mentioned? Yep. So um, was there something special about these two tales in particular? Are these the only tales that really feature female protagonists heavily, or was this just sort of a practical decision? Yeah, so we have 24 stories. Um, the idea was for each pilgrim to... Um, give us a tale on their way to Canterbury and one on the way back. And so we have 24 stories um, that trace the pilgrimage to Canterbury um, and none on the way back. 21 of these pilgrims are men and only three are women. Um, 
so I was really interested in working with a female narrator. Um, there's actually quite a lot of scholarship on the two um, other female narrators who are the wife of Bath. And for listeners who have any knowledge of the Canterbury Tales, they probably are familiar with the wife of Bath. Um, and then the prioress. Um, I was really interested in working with a tale that was understudied, um, especially this one, because I was just drawn so much to Cecilia and how she was um, wielding language and um, and using her body. So what I had actually originally planned, which um, I, I realized shortly after I was planning for something uh, dissertation length and not necessarily master's thesis length, um, but I was really interested in doing this um, comprehensive explication of the second nun's tale from a feminist perspective um, and then doing a second chapter on um, feminine discourse or speech as being kind of weaponized and looking at what this tale meant for the second nun, for other female narrators, for the um, female audience who were uh, listeners and readers. Um, However, um, I finished my chapter on the second nun's tale and um, or as I was maybe finishing and I I realized that I, especially in light of, of the results of the political election, um, wanted to focus much more on the, the tale's connection to sexual control of women's bodies and sexual, um, sexual assault, sexual violation of women's bodies, which I had already um, grounded my argument in with um, the ending of that tale. Um, so I decided I wanted to switch gears and work with the Second Night's Tale I had done kind of some fledgling work uh, through a paper that I'd written um, in the spring term beforehand with um, Professor Rebecca Olson, who is on sabbatical this year and is amazing. Um, and so I really wanted to, to push on that, uh, that sexual violation um, kind of aspect that I, was really, that I was really interested in. Can you talk a little bit more? You described that you sort of were interested in maybe a feminist lens or interpretation of these tales, but that then, you know, the sort of current election cycle got you more interested in it. But can you tell us a little bit more about how you developed your argument around sort of this gendered idea and the idea of the body and sort of where you came out? I know you have you said you have two different articles, right, in your thesis. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your two arguments and how you developed those? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I, I started with the second nun's tale um, first, obviously. Um, but as far as sequencing, uh, the knight's tale is f- appears, it's actually the, the first tale in the Canterbury Tales. Um, so that ended up taking place one uh, for the purposes of article arrangement. Um, so I'll talk about that one first. But um, in the Knight's Tale, I was really interested in ekphrasis, which um, is the verbal representation of visual representation. And um, I had typically, I guess, before taking Professor Olson's class, thought about um, ekphrasis just in terms of, um, I think most commonly we, we think of ekphrasis as like a poem, for example, that responds to or describes like a painting. Um, <clears throat> and there's ekphrasis that appears, that appears in the Knight's Tale um, with these temples that Theseus constructs um, in dedication to um, the gods Aphrodite, uh, Ares, and um, Diana. So um, I was really interested in that. This this place um, that Emily makes this prayer to Diana that she's 
desperately asking to retain her virginity and to avoid marriage um, and basically sexual interaction with men. She's surrounded by these images of um, of women who whose stories and mythology correlate with rape um, or attempted rape. And um, so there's this kind of fraught space already. Um, <clears throat> and so in my argument, um, basically, I, I talk about how um, if we look at this uh, tale through an ekphrastic lens, so if we're looking at both the depiction of the images in the Temple of Diana, as well as um, how we could look at the knight um, as narrator and his female protagonist as in an ekphrastic relationship that's gendered, um, what that can do for the tale. Um, and uh, basically, there's just these these myriad levels of appropriation. And if we're thinking about um, the correlation between sexual control of women's bodies um, and masculine power structures, that becomes very disturbing. Um, in the second nun's tale, um, similarly, um, in conjunction with the ending, and especially in light of the way that I argue um, that this is this is not just a religious. Um, problem with Cecilia's acquirement of power. Um, it's actually a gendered conflict between her, um, her and Almachius, who's the judge who tries her. Um, and basically the way in which this masculine power is reasserted by controlling her body that is this symbolic loss of virginity becomes really important to understanding um, that sexual control linkage as well. So the idea that <clears throat> Cecilia is an unusual female character in that she does not die for her virginity. Can you delve into that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so in preparing to write this first chapter last summer, I, I read hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of pages, um, especially from a, a book called The Golden Legend, um, which comprehensively compiles uh, writing on saints' lives. And so I became very familiar with these kind of um, tropes that were happening with um, especially in a, in a gendered way, um, how, how men's bodies um, were described and treated in the literature very differently from women's bodies. And one of the things that stood out to me um, very much in my reading of The Second Nun's Tale and um, was bolstered by, by my reading of this text and others about saints' lives is that women's bodies, um, women, female saints' bodies, tend to be very, very sexualized, um, in comparison to men's, um, they also, though, these women tend to um, be very um, forthcoming about their reasons for dying so um, or what they're protecting, which is often their virginity. Um, so Cecilia doesn't do that. She doesn't die for her virginity. She doesn't make any verbal kind of proclamations about her virginity um, during her trial or during her death. So um, I, I wasn't... Um, what I didn't want to do was separate um, Christianity or gender. I wanted to look at those things in conjunction with each other. But um, I think that Cecilia is much more interested, or the tale perhaps is much more interested in how virginity can be used as a tool rather than um, treating it as a religious virtue. So another thing I'm wondering is these the Canterbury Tales, why are these considered such a formative sort of important critical text that scholars repeatedly refer back to. Yeah, we come back to the Canterbury Tales again and again in medieval literature. And um, there's there wasn't a text like this before. Um, and I don't think that there's really been a text like this since. Um, so 
what's really fascinating to me, and I think a, a lot of people who study and even just read the Canterbury Tales, um, is that Chaucer sets up this kind of microcosm of um, of of England in the Middle Ages through this assembly of pilgrims, um, which in any other setting, these these people from all different walks of life um, would not really be interacting or engaging with each other. Um, and so it's a really interesting company and dynamic between these characters that um, we don't really see, not in, not in the real, real world and not in the literary world, at least at this time. Um, and Chaucer was kind of a unique uh, character himself in, in the sense that he would have had he had he had so many different positions and jobs um, where he was able to experience people in a variety of different settings and stations. So he actually had the knowledge and experience to be able to put this together, whereas a lot of other people would not have. And this was due to his background. He sort of came from a wealthier um, position. His family was wealthy. Is that he did? And I, I would have to brush up on my uh, studies of <laughs> yeah. of him um, as a person. But yeah, he he was he came from money. Um, and I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, there was some kind of degree of removal. But there was a relationship, um, I believe, with the king that kind of allowed him at least access into these positions. That then. Um, he was able to kind of move between um, things at various times. Yeah. Mm. Are there any remaining texts of the Canterbury Tales, and when do they date back from when they were recorded in manuscript form? Um, there are. So the Ellesmere Manuscript, which is this really, really beautiful um, illustrated version of the manuscript, um, I believe is in it's in Southern California. Um, which I have not visited and, and plan to. Um, but there's there's actually two versions. So there's the Ellesmere and there's the Hangart. Um, as far as like when they date from, and like I think um, we've talked about like ideas about what it means to be original in this period too, which mm-hmm. is really, really tough because um, these manuscripts were created by hand. So it would be difficult to say that that there is an original um, because we're talking about pre-printing press, but there are some versions of this manuscript that were still hand, um, hand done and hand um, illustrated that are, that are incredible. Nice. So I'm really interested to hear you have this really fascinating project and this interesting lens of looking at these particular tales where I want to know um, where does this love of medieval literature come from? Can you trace it back for us? When did it start? Yeah, it's that's a funny question because I think about it now and I'm like, oh, this makes so much sense. Um, my dad started reading to me when I was very, very young, um, when I was a baby. Um, and he used to read to me over and over again, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, um, which I just became obsessed with as a kid. Um, and I, I mean, I've always just really enjoyed reading those kinds of texts. So um, anything about dragons or um, fairy tales or, or whatever. Um, and then when I was an undergrad and I was, I was a non-traditional student, um, I guess it, it shouldn't be surprising that I read Beowulf and was just totally in love with that too um, in this amazing um, medieval to Renaissance British literature class that I took with a very talented professor then. Um, and so, yeah, when I came to grad school, I knew I was really interested in medieval literature, but I'd only had an opportunity to take this one class. So I was kind of still um, dabbling around with the idea of potentially doing something post-colonial. Um, I really love reading George Orwell. Um, 
but then of course I met with Tara and right away I was sold on uh, <laughs> um, her and just the Canterbury Tales and working with this tale um, that I found so fascinating. And I was just so worried about being able to find a niche that um, I could offer an interpretation in because these texts are so old and we've, we've studied them for so long. And um, yeah, it was just really exciting to find something that I, um, that I could work with in a way that I felt I could offer something really comprehensive. Um, nice. So you studied English for your undergraduate degree? I did. Um, I majored in English and I had an emphasis in secondary education, which is grades um, seven through 12. So I had intended to be a high school teacher. So what diverted your path from high school teacher to to studying for an MA and continuing in academia? Um, my degree was set up at uh, Western State Colorado University, um, where if you're an English major with a teaching emphasis, um, or secondary teaching emphasis anyway. So you spend the majority of your time um, with English. Um, and then in your final year, you move to working on um, your education coursework online while you're placed in a um, in a classroom. So you're, you're student teaching. Um, and I was placed in an eighth grade classroom. <laughs> um, I knew I had no interest in teaching seventh or eighth grade, but I was like, you know, this is, this is fine. It'll be for a year. Um, it'll be a good experience. And um, it was because it brought me to graduate school, but I knew very quickly, probably within a month of being there that, um, this was just something that I, I, I didn't want to do. Um, and actually moreover, I just really, really missed being in a classroom talking about literature. So what was your, uh, moment where you thought, okay, eighth grade teaching isn't for me. I'm going to go get an MA in English and I want to come to Oregon State. How did that happen? Um, my mentor teacher who I was working with, who was really lovely, um, we were both struggling with this particular class of students. And she was like, you know, um, if it makes you feel better, this is only the second class in 15 years of teaching that has made me want to quit my job every day. So to be fair, it was kind of a unique experience. But um, I, it was a combination of just apathy on the student's part um, and also just recognizing that the intellectual stimulation that I really thrived on as a student and in my own teaching experiences because I TA'd all through my undergrad and really, really loved it. Um, that was not something that was going to be satisfied, whether I was in an eighth grade classroom or a 12th grade classroom. Um, and so I was literally in my eighth grade classroom um, Googling English gra graduate school uh, programs. And I found Oregon State and it was fully funded and it was in Oregon. Um, and that's how I decided I was going to pursue grad school. Nice. One thing I want to return to is that um, your experience reading Beowulf in your undergraduate course and sort of what prompted, what was special about reading that and um, the study of that text that made you want to go further into medieval studies? Um, I took, a, I mean, a lot of great courses in English when as an undergrad, but I think that reading Beowulf, um, and so some people do read Beowulf in high school. I, I was not, that, that never came up for me. So this was my first time reading this text, um, but it was something that resonated 
so strongly with me because I've loved The Lord of the Rings for so long. And they're so similar. And like, and Tolkien was a Beowulf scholar, um, which of course I didn't know until then. But like, I mean, he takes a lot of, I think in his writing, there, there's a lot of kind of parallels, a lot that he draws on from from Beowulf um, in his stories. And there was something that just really struck me about um, reading that particular text that was so close to home with what I've loved for so long um, that just drew me to to medieval studies, I guess. And that with combined with the combination of an inspiring teacher, would you say? Yeah, of course. Um, Anthony McCauley was my professor for that class. And um, I, had, I had previously taken classes with um, his wife, who is also a professor at Western, um, Alina Luna. And I actually, I was really trying to take another class with her because I knew I wasn't going to have an opportunity. And she pushed me to take this class. And I'm so glad that she did um, because it totally changed my life. Wow, nice. You mentioned that you are a non-traditional student and people have a lot of different kinds of paths to graduate school. But can you talk a little bit about um, your, what you did in between high school and returning to college and sort of, you know, what, what you were doing then and then why you decided to return to college? Yeah, I worked, um, I worked in the dental field for a long time, uh, mostly doing like, I mean, I started out just as a, like a receptionist and then did a lot of practice management stuff. Um, did some dental assisting when I, when I had to, or like, that's what was available. So yeah, strangely, I, um, and I mean, I, I took, classes at community college off and on forever. Um, but I just didn't have the financial means to be able to do, to do it full time. And that's just kind of not the student I am. Like I knew when I went back and I, and I always knew I would, but I knew when I went back that I wanted to be able to like, to give it everything that I had. So I, I waited until I think I went back when I was 26, um, full time. And so, um, yeah, it was just, I was in a position at that point um, where, where I could do it and like dedicate, dedicate my whole self to doing it. And, um, you know, it worked out. It took some time, but it worked out. Ultimately it paid off. Yep. (laughs) So, um, so you've just defended your, your thesis here at, at Oregon State University. So, um, what's next for you, Emily, where are you headed after you leave Oregon State? I'm actually beginning um, a PhD in English, um, emphasizing in medieval literature at the University of Notre Dame this fall. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) That's amazing. So what are you hoping to specialize in once you get there, or is it way too early to tell? Oh, that's such a scary question. Yeah. <laughs> um, because it's it's strange. Like, I I mean, I just, I want to read everything and study everything, and that's, of course, not at all practical. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I um, would really like to continue some of the work that I've been doing with my thesis project, because as much as I um, I love it, it does have to come to an end <laughs> with um, the master's thesis. You can only, you know, you're, we have a page limit. Um, so I feel like there's still a lot of work there that I, I want to do. Um, but really anything, I'm, I'm very interested in, in representations of women in literature, um, especially underrepresented or understudied texts. Um, and so anything to do with women and gender and bodies and sexuality um, is is something that I'm concentrating my energy in. But I'm, I'm leaning towards... Uh, Middle English, which is what the Canterbury Tales are written in, um, not just focusing on the Canterbury Tales or on Chaucer, but um, 
the archive of texts that are um, written in Middle English during that time. One, <clears throat> excuse me. One thing I'm wondering is is there is there a just a an enormous variety of texts from this time, or is it pretty well studied and defined at this point? Um, there's a lot to be done in the Middle Ages, and I think that that was one of my um, I mean, it was one of my one of my fears. And I think that that was just kind of my lack of knowledge of like what was available to work with, um, because I was so worried about, like I was saying earlier, about kind of finding my niche in this particular area. Um, and then I, I was just at the international the International Congress on Medieval Studies. I mean, if that you know says anything about how big this field is um, and there were so many amazing presentations on texts that are just all over the place. Um you know, for example, Beowulf belongs to um, Old English and Anglo-Saxon studies, and that's just its whole other um, kind of beast that, I mean, there's so many different directions that um, that you can go in this field and text to work with. Wow, interesting. Well, that's really exciting that you're headed off to PhD land. Good luck. Uh, so here at Inspiration Dissemination, we have a couple traditions uh, the first of which is we ask our guests for advice. This could be advice to yourself from five years ago. It could be general advice. So what kind of advice do you have for us? Anyway? Yeah. Um, imposter syndrome is, is real, you guys. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I had heard of imposter syndrome before I started graduate school, and I was like, that's so ridiculous. Like, it's, it's all these, like, really successful, talented people that worry about imposter syndrome. And I was like, this this, I can't believe that this is real. Um, and then I started graduate school and I was like, this is debilitating some days. Like, I don't want to get out of bed because someone's going to find out that I'm not as smart as they thought I was or something. And it goes away. I, I thankfully had a really, really great supportive cohort and we were all dealing with it. Um, and we were all really open to talking about it. But um, that was that was something that I kind of wish someone would have prepped me for. Um, but I mean, going to graduate school is the best decision I've I've ever made. Um, it breaks you down in the best, worst way. Um, anything possibly could to build you back up in the best way. It's yeah. a great way of putting it. <laughs> I, I think you summed that up really very succinctly. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> All right. And our other tradition is that we invite, uh, we invite guests to, uh, play a song out so their request um so can you tell us Emily what song you selected and why why it matters to you why you chose it yeah so this song Oblivion is by Mastodon and it's my favorite band um I think I've seen them something like seven or eight times at this point um so Mastodon in um, my true literary nerd fashion does concept albums um and so this particular song is taken from their album called Crack the Sky, which is about uh, czarist and Rasputin Russia. Um, but they have other albums, like their first album um, is Leviathan. It's all about Moby Dick. Um, so they're, they're this really amazing band um, who just does some really intellectual, uh, I think, stuff with their music. I love awesome. that idea. <laughs> yeah, awesome. That's great. Well, Emily, it was a pleasure to have you on yeah. Inspiration Dissemination. Yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. And here we go. Here's Emily's request, Mastodon uh, with Oblivion. Oblivion. 